0: Chapter 36 of Memoir of Washington Irving by Charles Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoir of Washington Irving by Charles Adams. Chapter 36 From the period of his return from Washington, for two years onward, Mr. Irving seems to have prosecuted, with considerable intervals of sickness, excursions, and visits, his new work his health after reaching seventy was capricious and uncertain his spirits however were almost always cheery and he retained fully all those genial and kindly traits for which he had throughout life been so greatly distinguished he was seventy-two when he issued the first volume of his washington this volume carried forward the history of its subject to his arrival at the camp before boston as commander-in-chief of the american army he appears to have had serious misgivings in respect to the reception and success of this volume, entertaining some fears that it might be the death of him. Amid such misgivings and fears, however, he received the following note from Mr. Bancroft, the historian. Your volume, of which I gained a copy last night, and this morning have received one made still more precious by your own hand, shortened my sleep last night at both ends, I was up late and early and could not rest until i had finished the last page candour good judgment that knows no bias the felicity of selection these are yours in common with the best historians but in addition you have the peculiarity of writing from the heart enchaining sympathy as well as commanding confidence the happy magic that makes scenes events and personal anecdotes present themselves to you at your bidding and fall into their natural places and take colour and warmth from your own nature the style too is masterly clear easy and graceful picturesque without mannerism and ornamented without losing simplicity among men of letters who do well you must above all take the name of felix which so few of the great roman generals could claim you do everything rightly as if by grace, and I am in no fear of offending your modesty, for I think you were elected and foreordained to excel your contemporaries. Such a letter as this, and from such a source, joined with other flattering notices of the new work, encouraged him to proceed, and to accomplish the entire undertaking at whatever expense of labor. Hence, within six months following the first volume, appeared the second, bringing the narrative down to the victories of trenton and princeton on the reception of this volume prescott the historian thus addresses the author you have done with washington just as i thought you would and instead of a cold marble statue of a demigod you have made him a being of flesh and blood like ourselves one with whom we can have sympathy the general sentiment of the country has been too decidedly expressed for you to doubt for a moment that this is the portrait of him which is to hold the permanent place in the national gallery other letters of approval from different sources bancroft tuckerman and others poured in upon him as this second volume appeared in two months more the third volume was already passing through the press and was published in the following july eighteen fifty six extending the narrative to washington's return to winter quarters in seventeen seventy nine in may of the following year the fourth volume was published on occasion of which a letter from bancroft pronounced his picture of washington the most vivid and truest that had ever been written and prescott writes i have never before fully comprehended the character of washington nor did i know what capabilities it would afford to his biographer hitherto we have only seen him as a sort of marble colossus full of moral greatness but without the touch of humanity that would give him interest you have known how to give the marble flesh color that brings it to the resemblance of life on the ninth of march eighteen fifty nine he put the finishing touch to the fifth and last volume of his life of washington the printers were nearly up with him when the final sheet was completed and the volume appeared forthwith and the pen of washington irving dropped from his hand never to be resumed we subjoin here a general view from the pen of edward everett of mr irving as a writer we regard washington irving as the best living writer of english prose let those who doubt the correctness of this opinion name his superior let our brethren in england name the writer whom they place before washington irving he unites the various qualities of a perfect manner of writing and so happily adjusted and balanced are they that their separate marked existence disappears in their harmonious blending his style is sprightly pointed easy correct and expressive without being too studiously guarded against the opposite faults it is without affectation parade or labour if we were to characterize a manner which owes much of its merit to the absence of any glaring characteristic we should perhaps say that it is above the style of all other writers of the day marked with an expressive elegance washington irving never buries up the clearness and force of the meaning under a heap of fine words nor on the other hand does he think it necessary to be coarse slovenly or uncouth in order to be emphatic in bestowing upon Mr. Irving the praise of a perfect style of writing, it must not be understood that we commend him in a point of mere manner. To write as Mr. Irving writes is not an affair which rests in a dexterous use of words alone, at least not if we admit the popular but unphilosophical distinction between words and ideas. Mr. Irving writes well, because he thinks well, because his ideas are just, clear, and definite he knows what he wants to say and expresses it distinctly and intelligibly because he so apprehends it there is also no affectation of the writer because there is none in the man there is no pomp in his sentences because there is no arrogance in his temper there is no overloading with ornament because with the eye of an artist he sees when he has got enough and he is sprightly and animated because he catches his tints from nature and dips his pencil in truth which is always fresh and racy washington irving has been much and justly commended in england and america but full justice has not yet been done him compare him with any of the distinguished writers of his class of this generation excepting sir walter scott and with almost any of what are called the english classics of any age compare him with goldsmith one of the canonized names of the british pantheon of letters who touched every kind of writing and adorned everything he touched in one or two departments it is true that of poetry and the one or two departments which mr irving has not attempted and in drama departments which mr irving has not attempted and in which much of goldsmith's merit lies the comparison partly fails but place their pretensions in every other respect side by side who would think of giving the miscellaneous writings of goldsmith a preference over those of irving and who would name his historical contributions with the life of columbus if in the drama and in poetry goldsmith should seem to have extended his province greatly beyond that of irving the life of columbus is a chef-d'oeuvre in a department which goldsmith can scarcely be said to have touched for the trifles on grecian and roman history which his poverty extorted from him, deserve to enter into comparison with Mr. Irving's great work, about as much as Eutropius deserves to be compared with Livy. Then how much wider Irving's range in that department common to them both, the painting of manners and character? From Mr. Irving we have the humors of contemporary politics and everyday life in America, the traditionary peculiarities of the Dutch founders of New York, the nicest shades of the school of english manners of the last century the chivalry of the middle ages in spain the glittering visions of moorish romance a large cycle of sentimental creations founded on the invariable experience the pathetic sameness of the human heart and lastly the whole unhackneyed freshness of the west life beyond the border a camp outside the frontier a hunt on buffalo ground beyond which neither white nor pawnee man nor muse can go this is mr irving's range and in every part of it he is equally at home when he writes the history of columbus you see him weighing doubtful facts in the scales of a golden criticism you behold him laden with the manuscript treasures of well searched archives and disposing these heterogeneous materials into a well digested and instructive narration take down another of his volumes and you find him in the parlour of an english country inn of a rainy day and you look out of the window with him upon the dripping dreary desolation of the back yard anon he takes you into the ancestral hall of a baronet of the old school and instructs you in the family traditions of which the memorials adorn the walls and depend from the rafters before you are wearied with the curious lore you are on the pursuit of kid the pirate in the recesses of long island and by the next touch of the enchanter's wand you are wrapped into an enthusiastic reverie of the mystic east within the crumbling walls of the alhambra you sigh to think you were not born six hundred years ago that you could not have beheld these now deserted halls as they once blazed in triumph and rang with the mingled voices of oriental chivalry and song when you find yourself once more borne across the atlantic whirled into the western wilderness with a prairie wide as the ocean before you and a dusky herd of buffaloes like a crowded convoy of fleeing merchantmen looming in the horizon and inviting you to the chase this is literally nullum ferre genus scribendi non tigit nullum quod tetiget non ornovit there was almost no kind of writing which he did not touch, or which touching he did not adorn. End note. Whether anything like an equal range is to be found in the works of him on whom the splendid compliment was first bestowed, it is not difficult to say. End of chapter thirty six. Recording by Maria Casper.